welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, big guest, everyone, Jeff Rickley of the band Thursday, of No Devotion, of the band United Nations, uh, tons more. We'll get to more of that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. You can send me an email. You can also find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. You can also go over to facebook.com and you can find the Turned Out of Punk Facebook page. You can like it. It's run by my brother, Tristan Abraham. You can send me a message there. You can also, if you don't use Facebook and want to see some of the cool stuff that gets sent in that we post up there on that Facebook page, go over to tumblr.com. Uh, turnedoutofpunk.tumblr.com, I believe. That's it. And you can see all that same sort of stuff posted there as well. Uh, and, um, uh, the, yeah, and, and that's about that. If you want to support this show, you can tell all your friends about it and tell them that you love it and they should listen to it. Or you can, if you subscribe to iTunes or use iTunes, you can subscribe to this podcast and you can rate it and review it on there. And uh, that would be great. I guess that's it for right now. Uh, maybe I'll plug some other stuff. Uh, Fucked Up will be in England next week, if you're listening to this when this comes out. Uh, so if you're in Liverpool, Brighton, Manchester, London, Leeds, come see me. Come hang out. We'll talk. And we'll uh, tell me what you'd like and don't like about this podcast. It'll be like in-person feedback, you know, and, and, and chat. And, and get me to see me play uh, some music on stage. Uh, also, coming next week, next Wednesday, huge, huge premiere for this uh, gentleman that you're listening to talk right now. The premiere of Bloodlust, the Tournament of Death documentary that I made uh, with some friends over at Vice, my buddy Shawnee. And uh, yeah, it's a really uh, yeah, kind of a totally different perspective than any other look that I've ever seen given to uh, CZW's Tournament of Death that is Combat Zone Wrestling's uh, infamous tournament that's held in rural Delaware where uh, wrestlers <laughs> destroy each other with all manner and uh, implements uh, all manner of weapons and implements I should say so yeah it is it is awesome. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy it if you, even if you don't like really violent wrestling, which I know there are shockingly some of you out there that feel that way. Um, there is an incredible story in this thing. So please check that out. Uh, that'll be up on vice.com next week, I believe next Wednesday. If it's not out next Wednesday, I will tell you when it's going to be out uh, next week. Okay. That is it for the plug section of the show. On to today's program. Today on the show, my friend Jeff Rickley of the band Thursday is here to join us today. He also has gone on to uh, run a, a record label, which has no doubt been in the news. Uh, he's also gone on to front some other bands, but we're not going to get to any of that today on the show. Now, those are for the part twos and threes. Today, we're going to spend a lot of time dealing with Jeff's incredibly fascinating early life journey into music. This is someone who has had uh, like a, a, a tutelage that I am jealous of. Let me put it that way. Uh, you will enjoy this one, I think. So I'm not going to waste any more of your time by yammering on about it. I do have one major correction there's probably like a lot more, but one that really jumped out at me was the fact that I, for some reason, uh, when talking about the New York scene of the mid nineties, talk about Iceburn being from there. Iceburn was not from there. Iceburn of course was from, uh, Utah. Uh, so I believe it's Salt Lake city, right? Cause that's the X insight band. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, uh, I, uh, but I do apologize for saying they were from New York. I don't know what band I was thinking of, but definitely not them. Okay, everyone, now sit back, relax, and enjoy Jeff Rickley on Turned Out a Punk. Cool. 
Jeff, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to sit down and talk to me today. It's, Damien, it's my pleasure. Well, as I mentioned to you off-air, I'm recording this from a very scary basement dwelling, <laughs> so if I go quiet on the line at any point, please call Toronto Police. And I'll send them in, yeah. Please, because Candyman's gotten me or something. Oh, no, that's twice I've <laughs> that's, said it now. How many times have you said it now? He's twice, coming. twice, I think. Oh, right? <laughs> not one more, not one more. Well, I'm not looking into a mirror or my FaceTime camera right now, so I think I'm okay. safe. Um, yeah. But we're not here to talk about Candyman or my oh, that's it. Uh, oh God, that's the third. <laughs> uh, but or my fear of that movie. We're here to talk about you and yes. Jeff. I want to start it off the way I start them all off, which is, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? I mean, I'm not sure if it was the first time. Um, you know, I, I remember. Um, vividly you know i was i was a goth kid i liked goth and industrial like really young like like uh before i even had like an idea that i was into music i just liked some some goth stuff i liked some smith stuff i liked the cure um i really you know like everybody else i loved michael jackson um but especially i loved vincent price um at the end of thriller like so that was even kind of goth for what absolutely it was, you know what i mean um where was so that, that was coming what from I was really where, into where sorry where, where were you hearing that the goth stuff or like, was it just MTV or no, no, I was, um, like from the time I was like, I was trying to figure out how young I was, but I think it was four. I got really into horror movies, <laughs> um, which was really a bad idea. Cause I remembered, uh, when I was really little, like when I was like three or four, we lived in Stanford, Connecticut for a minute. And, um, we, we actually lived in like one of the few streets that, that wasn't a real great neighborhood. I remember like the crack house across the street getting raided by the police and then telling us to lie down on the floor so we wouldn't get hit by stray bullets. Yeah. Um, but in that time, which was, you know, about four years old, I do remember that I watched a movie called, um, Alice, Sweet Alice or something like that. It was Brooke Shields' first movie where she was like a little girl and there was a killer that wore those see-through masks. She wore a see-through mask and a like yellow rain slicker and she, uh, she like kills a priest in a church. So it was like really, for a four year old, it was really brutal. Um, and yeah. the reason I remember that it was there was we lived with my grandmother and my aunt. And on Halloween, my aunt dressed up with that see through mask and the rain slicker and <laughs> hobbled up to the front door. And my dad almost pushed her down the stairs because she was so terrifying. And it was my like hobbling great aunt. Oh my God. <laughs> so I do remember that that's when I got into horror movies, um, at about four. And I watched USA Up All Night. And the, so my first exposure to like goth music was in horror movies. It was in like, you know, sorority sluts and the sleaze bowl, bowl arama, like, terrible movies like that you know yeah, usa up all night night of the living dead or return of the night of the living dead right they have that mm -hmm. killer soundtrack with like the cramps and i can't remember totally. what else is on it too yeah so and that's lost how I got boys sorry yeah. go on. sorry <laughs> um and and that was like you know i didn't really love punk i loved like the more romantic stuff i loved um you know susie and the banshee the cure and the smiths and, and all that kind of stuff but then um, when I was maybe nine or 10. So also my parents are really into music and they would take me to see like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and the replacements open for him. You know what I mean? Like stuff oh, wow. like that. Um, how old were you that? At that, at that show? I think I was six. That's a, so that your first, yeah. was that your first show? Your first show is like the replacements at six years old. No, I wish. I think it was like, um, maybe dire straits when I was like three or four. Yo, a Sultan's a swing <laughs> is a killer track. Yeah. That, yeah. that is a, still a cool concert. Maybe not the most exciting concert. Right. I mean, they brought out Eric Clapton and my parents were like pretty thrilled, but you know, like Whoa. I think of Eric Clapton as like, you know, tears in heaven. And they're like, no cream, you know? Um, <laughs> but that's still but, like uh, slow hands. That's a big bring out for dire strikes. They bring out like Clapton to do. Huge. Song with yeah. Them. Yeah. Huge. So, um, anyway, that's, yeah, that's my, uh, that's like kind of like where I got into it. But then my parents took me to a show that I don't remember how we got there. I think it was Slayer. And, um, <laughs> But what I saw was Bad Brains open for them. I and mean, it was, I think it was the Roxy in New York. And, um, what? How that old changed are you? my life. Um, yeah, I'm only 37. But no, but how old like are you at that, at that show? Oh, eight, maybe seven, eight, something like that. Jeff, you've um, got like the, like, this is probably like one of the coolest starts. Your parents went yeah. to the show with you? Oh, my parents, yeah, I mean, always. Like, my parents still come to see us a lot, but like, I'll see my dad and he'll be like, um, Saw Quicksand, and I'll be like, oh, today? And he'll be like, no, 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 I saw them in New York when you were, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, whoa. You know, or he'd be like, <laughs> I'd be on tour with Thursday, and he'd be like, I want you to see Candiria in the Dillinger Escape Plan. And I'd be like, how was that? 
<laughs> yeah, pretty good. <laughs> That's, I thought I had a pretty musically cool parent in my father, but uh, that, that takes the cake. That is awesome. Holy. Well, they give you an idea about my mom. She's like, uh, she looks really super young and she's really, you know, she's pretty and a very goth. Everybody calls her goth mom. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but she is goth enough that when we toured with Secure, um, there was a show at Randall's Island in New York and the New York Times were taking pictures backstage and they ran, uh, like cover the art section, like, like Robert Smith and his wife. And it was my mom. <laughs> it wasn't his wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Your yeah. mom must've been stoked about that. Like that was, a she, moment. she was, she was tickled. And Robert Smith was like, I should be so lucky. Cause he's like such a gentleman, you know? Oh, that's um, awesome. Well, yeah. I want to get to touring with the cure, but I <laughs> and that won't be till part six of this show. So, I think we should get on with uh, part one, but that's awesome. So your parents took you to that show, and where did mm-hmm. you go from there? You saw the Bad Brains at a pretty amazing point to see the Bad yeah. Brains. Yeah. So what, yeah, did, what happened after that? was hugely transforming. I got really into the idea of hardcore. I mean, I got really into Bad Brains first, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people tried to get me into, like, you know, uh, Living Color and stuff like that uh, when I was obsessed with the bad brains you know a lot of people are like oh you should check out this you should check out this you should check out this mm-hmm. but it was really like the hardcore and the abandon of hardcore and the communal thing and the danger and like you know it was just so thrilling because up till then i thought i had seen shows for so long and i thought of them as concerts where the band presented something and there's a barricade and far away you idolize the band you know mm-hmm. um and that's not what this was. This was like everybody in the club is in the band and it's wild and you can't control them. And they're literally too awesome. You know, they're just too awesome to be like a regular band. And that's, that was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. So I got into like Black Flag and um, Minor Threat and stuff like that, like in, in, a, in a more minor way. And, and then it kind of like, I coasted on that until Fugazi. Um, and that's what like... That's when I like legit was like I'm a I'm a hardcore kid like like this is what I'm about like up until then I knew I wasn't a tough guy and I you know so I, I enjoyed it and I thought live you know Bad Brains is the best band in the world but I was still mm-hmm. into you know Nine Inch Nails and Depeche Mode and all these like sort of darker things um, I got really into Wax Tracks industrial stuff um, Skinny Puppy was a big band for me but you know when when I heard Fugazi I was like okay this has the spirit of the Bad Brains. But it has like a musical thing that that I get and that I love and that like captures my attention on record. And then from there, you know, the world kind of opened up into like Quicksand and Burn and like all these bands that were more musically adventurous. So where were you buying records at this point? Where were you getting records? Oh, right. Um, so at that point, my parents had moved to New Jersey and we had... Um, a little, I mean, little record store, probably the size of like my college dorm room, you know, like really, really small. And it was mostly cassettes, except in the middle, there were racks of CDs and I could get him to order anything. Um, if I put in the order on a Tuesday, he would get it to me by (laughs) Friday. Yeah. Um, (laughs) so it wasn't like he stocked just like the coolest stuff. It was like, I could be like this and this and this, and he'd bring them in on cassette. Um, and then my first girlfriend um, robbed a monster magnet tape from his store, and like I never fully recovered my relationship with the guy that owned the store <laughs> because I like covered for her, and even though I was like mad at her, and it was like the end of kind of the end of our little stupid high school relationship. But jeez, oh, um, but at least it was for a New Jersey uh, classic. <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't know. I didn't get it at the time, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I was never really a rock and roll. Like rock and roll never did it for me. I always like yeah. super stylized stuff. Uh, well, have you got to check out Shrapnel, the pre-Monster Magnet power pop kind of glammy band? That's no, but somebody told me it was great. I think Tom Sharpling maybe said it was great. Somebody told me how yeah. great it was. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. It is. It yeah. is really worth checking out. And it's also uh, one of the first bands Michael Alago signed to Electro before he signed Metallica. Oh wow! Yeah. So that was their major label debut. But like, so where were you hearing about these bands then? Was it like on community radio or magazines or just mm, well, from your we parents? Had, um, yeah, there were a few different ways. Um, you know, I was reading, you know, magazines, and my parents for Christmas would get me British magazines. Oh yeah. Um, Enemy and stuff like that. Q on Mojo. Like I, I don't remember exactly which ones, but I remember Enemy and. Um, 
And I remember that I read about Reading Fest, like the year that it was like Nirvana and Sonic Youth and all those bands. And I was like, someday I'm going to go to that. You know what I mean? Like someday I'm going to see that. I'm going to save up. I'm going to see it someday. And like, so the first year we played Reading Fest was like, whoa, you know, I didn't get to save up this yet. I, I, I'm on stage and people are like losing their minds. You know, this is cool. That's awesome. So because of that, were you into more of like the British stuff, I guess? To- yeah, totally. I, I really got into some of that stuff. And um, also I should mention that um, my mom's side of the family is Irish. So mm-hmm. like starting really young, we would spend every summer in Ireland. Um, and I got into like bands that, you know, my friends have never heard of, you know, like I, I saw like the levelers and therapy question mark and yeah. stuff that never really made it to the States. Um, you know, uh, Blinker the Star and weird stuff like that. Um, well, the Levelers are having their 20th anniversary show in Toronto coming up, so, or 30th anniversary show. I, I was going to say, it can't be yeah, 20. No, I'm 30th. almost at 20 Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> 30th anniversary show coming up. So if you want to come up, you can crash at my house. And wow, yeah. The Levelers. <laughs> yeah, I remember it was like, so that was such a strange sight when you were a kid. You know, it was like anarcho jigs. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess it's like there's, there is like a real, uh, sort of like, uh, folk music kind of bend to a lot of that, uh, like anarcho stuff at a certain point. Like, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Cause the folk movement sort of influenced it. And then there's also a certain amount of like, well, when you don't have anything and you just make music wherever, like a guitar, like folk, mm-hmm. that's the way to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so at what point did you start going to shows? I guess you're like going to shows still like with your, your folks and stuff, right? Yeah. Are you getting them to take you to like punk and hardcore shows or are you just kind of yeah. like, well, yeah, no, both. I mean, like I remember freshman year of high school, uh, the week that it started, I remember, you know, they used to put on the MTV, um, video music awards, like first week of school back. Mm-hmm. And I remembered missing that my freshman year because I was going to see, um, Faith No More and Helmet at the Roseland. <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was crazy because Helmet had just put out Meantime. So yeah, I was good like, choice. in the pit and it was insane. And then two days later at the Roseland again, I saw Jesus and Mary Chain curve and spiritualized. Um, Whoa. yeah, I mean, spiritualized was opening one of three, you yeah. know, just to give you an idea at the Roseland, but like Jesus and Mary Chain had just put out Honey's Dead. And so like, I'm still going to, you know, these shows with my parents, but, um, you know, and I'm seeing some big bands, you know, you know, we all saw Fugazi a bunch together, which, you know, is still like, holy crap. But I think probably for me, the big change was at like 15, I started going to the Westwood Garage, um, which was like this band Heckle, uh, mm, I, I think f- owned it. Yeah. And uh, so like I saw like, you know, the first AFI tour there, I saw like, you know, a bunch of Screw 32 and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um you're, yeah, now you're in my wheelhouse, Jeff. Yeah, definitely. But I want to go back to quickly to Fugazi. Where, yeah. like, was it through magazines? I guess you first heard about them, or was it like kind no. of because you were into them super no. early? Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was. Um, oh God, I don't think I've ever told anybody this. This is going to be embarrassing. So uh, the other thing that I used to do in summer, starting in seventh grade, was um, I went to uh, these summer college programs because I got like. In seventh grade, they gave me the SATs for some reason, and I got like 1,100 in seventh grade. And uh, so I started getting these like little scholarshipy. I would take college classes in the summer, um, you know, starting in seventh grade, eighth grade through high school. I would take, you know, if I had a year of college done when I got to school finally. Um, and and it was like uh, this thing, John Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, they called it, which is such a ridiculous, preposterous, pompous name, but. Um, but, you know, all the kids that went there were all like me. They were kind of like geeky, nerdy, smart kids that, like, didn't fit in. And um, so we would trade tapes, and a kid gave me a tape that had um, that had some of Margin Walker on it, and it had Waiting Room on it. And um, I don't think it had been collected into 13 songs yet. I'm not sure. I did, At least I didn't have that. I had cassette versions. Um, so that's how I found out about that. And, you know, they told me the legend of it, you know, about the $5 shows and the this and that. And that was, um, you know, that was something that I was like, I'm going to see this someday. So the first time I saw them, I saw them two days in a row at Roseland when In on the Kill Taker came out. And that was like, that was a big moment for me in my life. Like it changed a lot of the way I thought about stuff. For one thing, like, all, you know, the moshing that happened with Bad Brains, to see them say no mm-hmm. and why. It was like, I couldn't understand it. I was like, you know, the first night I didn't understand. The second night I got it, you know? So it was like really cool um, to have those ideas about what's dangerous challenged, you know? Um, 
So where did that, like, yeah, like, I guess, man, you're so young. What, how old are you when you see Fugazi? Like um, 12, 10? No, that's probably, I'm probably more like 14 there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's still pretty young. I had gotten into them a couple of years before, but yeah, the first yeah. time I saw them, I was like 14. So um, I guess like when you're seeing these shows, are you mm-hmm. playing in a band? Or are you deciding that you no. want to do bands at this point or no? No, no, no. Uh, it wasn't until one of those summer programs, um, I think before eighth grade, either before eighth grade or after eighth grade, um, I was in a cover band with a bunch of like nerdy kids from uh, that program. Program and we played the pizza shop at um, uh, Fairly Dickinson, I think, and um, we did a Sonic Youth song, which I'm sure we played, you know, totally wrong. We did "Keep the Glove" by Dinosaur Jr., and we did like some something else I don't remember. And um, that was like the first time I ever played music, but it was like a really crazy thing because it was also the first time that I equated like you don't have to know what you're doing to be the singer and <laughs> still people like think you're cool. And that was really fun. <laughs> what made that, what made you decide to be the singer? Like, what was that? I just couldn't do anything else. And they were like, you want to be in the band? I was like, yeah, <laughs> you're speaking my language, Jeff. You're definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you can't do anything. It's cool. You can be the singer. Like, yeah, of course I'll be the singer. <laughs> what Sonic Youth song did you do? Do you remember? Um, yeah, I do, but we did it so badly. We did, um, what do you call it? Dirty Boots. Oh, sick track, though. Yeah, such a great song. <laughs> I mean, we did it so bad. Uh, so I guess at that point, are you like kind of bitten by the bug to start playing music? Or are you just like doing other cover bands? Or Yeah, no, no. By then, I was totally, um, I was totally in it. Like, I remembered all these people coming up to me and being like, I heard you're in, in the band, blah, blah, blah. And then it sort of like somehow spread that I was like, yeah, like he's like a singer and he like does music. And like people were like, that's so cool. And I was like, what? I don't like, this is the first time I've done this. But like the sort of like idea that I was like this cool guy in a band definitely got in my head. And when I got home, I was like, I'm going to start a band so that when like people ask me next summer, like I'll, you know, I'll legit like be somebody who has a band, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, which was really like at the time it was, it was way more about learning to socialize than it was about like some burning need to play music, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, for sure. Well, you also, I guess like, you know, you, you've been into it now for a while, like into like music, Uh, like at that age, you're like, you're a vet by that point. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, for so long, I just thought, you know, these superhumans and their bands like are great to watch. And I'm cool because I watch this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like you could do that someday. It was like, no, I'm cool because I'm into music. Like that's cool. You know, like my friends, older sisters are into music too. And they think I'm cool because I like music, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like, that was like a thing that until like I saw, you know, the garage shows and I saw like, I thought, oh no, I'm not just in a cover band. Like I can, I can do this. Like I can, you know, there's nothing stopping me from, from being the guy in the bands. Like I could screw it. Let's do it. You know? (laughs) It's funny. Cause like now I guess we're going to transition to talking about heckles garage, which heckles like a band. I love, I I love (laughs) the record on Wingnut, And then they did one on hopeless, like the LPs, but they had like, they had the split with AFI. They just Mm -hmm. like hickey too, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, they did. But they're like a band that I think's kind of lost a little bit to the sands of time. It feels 100%. 100%. Yeah, I don't think people really remember Heckle, but you know, at the time they were super important. They were like, you know, at the time I really think one thing that I understood there in the sort of mid to late 90s was um or even, you know, sort of early 90s even some of it um was that, you know, hardcore and punk were so regional, you know, it was um you know, the guy that did the garage in Westwood or the guy that did the youth center in DC or the guy that did this and it was like, you know, those bands would be kind of like the coolest thing about that town was that they had this really unique band that sounded like their town and other bands would start to sound like them because they played all the time. And every kid, you know, in the, in the area would see them and think they were the coolest. And, um, so it was like, you know, you had a bunch of bands that sounded like heckle in New Jersey. You had a bunch of bands that sounded like AFI and in, uh, you know, Oakland or wherever from, um, you know, I really loved that. And like, I really loved the thing that I loved about heckle. So I went to high school with some of those guys, you know, they were, in high school when they were putting out records on legit labels, which is, you know, I just think that's so cool. Yeah. Um, but what I do remember is that like, I never really loved heckle when they were like a silly punk band. I've never liked fat records bands. I've never liked that kind of stuff, but the last heckle record like was like kind of political and angry and like, 
it was really cool. Like I got, I was so happy. And then the singer went on to do like seven years war or something like that. And that was, that was cool too. Um, but the last heckle record I was super into. And didn't the guitar player join Ensign? I think. Pukey. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Eric Pukey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess like, you know, you mentioned Screw 32 and AFI coming through, but you, uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, you've also, I guess the dominant sound of that era was kind of like that epithet sound of bands. Right. Uh, so what were the bands locally that were more in your kind of like taste at that point? Um, there weren't a ton locally. Um, like all my friends' bands were like the Dirty Muffs and Rest Assured and like sort of like this punk hardcore thing that I wasn't as into like very straight ahead. Um, and very like sort of like almost like got way more popular in the last few years. That sort of like, uh, punk news sound, you know, the, the kind of like flannel and beard, like, uh, yeah. traditional Springsteen punk or whatever. Yeah. I don't know what you would want to call it. <laughs> yeah. Like I, someone's got to eventually, you know, codify that genre and come up with a name, but like you just named all the signposts of it and I knew exactly what you were talking about. <laughs> that, um, that would be almost, you're right. That's almost like, it's so funny because like New Jersey obviously is a massive state with like an incredible array of punk bands that come out of it. But like uh-huh. if I was going to say like, what is New Jersey punk? Uh-huh. That, that would be a lot of it. I think at a certain point, like you're saying, it's like yeah, pop punk hardcore kind of thing. Yeah, totally. And even like, there were even some like more straight ahead punk bands like um like blank seventy seven type stuff. Um geez, Casualties I'm, definitely on Casualties, my definitely, yeah. So like I'm reaching back and not remembering some of this. But what I was really into was the sort of beginnings of like the New York post like post New York hardcore, like so stuff like Burn and Quicksand mm-hmm. and there was a band called Home Thirty Three uh that I really loved. And um and was like one of my first friends in the hardcore scene was the singer of that band, Ryan. Did um, they record anything? I've never, I've never heard of that band. Home oh, 30. Home 33. Yeah. They yeah. were on, um, profile. Okay. Um, yeah. But they sounded like sort of quicksand and burn crossed with like, uh, oh, I don't know. Like he had a lot of, like he was like really into, um, you know, people compared them to bad brains a lot, but I think that was just cause he was like a really animated African American singer. Um, yeah, but he had a lot of in- influence in sort of like goth and, and um, sort of like darker pop stuff. So every so often, like they did a cover Shit. of this night has opened my eyes. That was like really early on before quicksand even did um, how soon is now. I got to so, check like, that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the records aren't great sounding, but live they were just so incredible. And, um, and they had some really important like moments in New York history, which was like, um, the singer's older band, Bushman, um, they played a show and the, Bra- the Black Rock Coalition um, mm-hmm. showed up and there were like a bunch of people talking about like killing like white people and killing pigs, like, you know, all this stuff. And like, he was very like, no, not at my shows. Like, you're not going to take it there. And so like they stopped supporting him and it became like a really big deal. Um, but he was just like, no, like, you know, that's that's not why I'm into hardcore, like to, to do that. Like, you know, he was a part of it because he, you know, he. Uh, you know, stood up for civil rights and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it was just a really interesting time to be like a young kid that, yeah. you know, it used to be a dollar twenty five to take the bus into the city. Um, so we would all just go into the city and, you know, we would cause a lot of trouble and buy, you know, buy beer before we were even close to the right age <laughs> and, you know, buy mushrooms, buy acid, you know, we were just, we were, you know, stupid kids. Um, and New York was <laughs> still a dangerous, like not dangerous place, oh. but it was still like a crazier place than it is today. Yeah. I got stabbed when I was a kid, when I was 16 what? years old, I got stabbed in New York. Um, they Where? stole $3. Um, believe it or not, the meatpacking district, I was walking down to the village, um, from 42nd street and, um, yeah. And these two guys jumped me and, uh, and I got my leg up in front of me when he was trying to stab me. And I, so I got it like in the knee, like I still have a scar on my knee from it, but, um, yeah. Whoa. There's some Thursday songs about that incident, but, uh, <laughs> I can imagine that would be yeah. a, like a, a, a very traumatic thing to go through as a kid. Like, did that scare you off going to the city at this point for a while? Oh, it or scared anything? me off like everything for a while. Like, um, yeah. my friends would like come up, they would like roll up on me like in high school and I would get terrified and upset. And like, yeah, it was, it was, it was bad. Like yeah. I also had like a really bad trip around then. So I was like really, really shell shocked for a while. I'd say like maybe a year and a half. I got like really, um, I cut all my hair off and I started lifting weights. It was a really bad time for me. Mm-hmm. I stopped looking people in the eye. It was really weird. Um, mm-hmm. but then, 
but then I sort of found my crowd at, at, in college and it's, it kind of got better or whatever. Um, but yeah, when people talk about missing the old New York, the real New York, I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. Like, yeah, sure. There's like a couple things that were interesting about it, but like, no, like crime being down is a good thing. Mm -hmm. like, anyway, whatever. Yeah. I don't want to get political about that. It's stupid. So where were you going to shows? Like, what were the venues like at that point? Like, obviously there was just stuff in the meatpacking district. It was like a very different mm -hmm. city as you're kind of mentioning. So different. Um, you had places like, um, so the first place I ever played in New York was the pyramid on Avenue A yeah. and the pyramid yeah. was like super cool. Um, uh, a guy tried to sell me, um, a TV outside the pyramid, but it was on. I, it still, I don't know how he did it. He was like totally a junkie, totally strung out, and he had a TV that had static on it that he was holding. And I was like, "Where's that plugged in?" <laughs> uh, uh, we played there. Um, I saw shows at Bond Street. I saw there was a place called Under Acme. Um, that was like a basement show type thing. There was. Um, there was uh, Coney Island High was super classic. Um, yeah. And, and the way that I ended up at Coney Island High was I went to go to CBS, but wasn't old enough. You had to be 16 to get into CBS. Um, <laughs> so I got turned away, and instead uh, Coney Island let me in, and the show was was Madball VOD Crown of Thorns. Like it's like talk about like if you don't belong somewhere too young. Uh, yeah. that was insanely violent, that show. Um, what year is that here at the Crown of Thorns and Madball? <laughs> um, 95, maybe? Oh, that's like, yeah, that's like the, I guess that would be the prime era for that being, as you say, like a pretty intense scene. Yeah, I mean, when I walked in, so like the way Coney Island used to be, uh, Coney Island High was, uh, which is on St. Mark's for people that uh, don't know, it's it's not in Coney Island, it's, uh, it's on St. Mark's and... Uh, there's a front door and then there's a hallway and a second door that goes into the club. And so when I opened the door to go into the hallway, uh, the door on the other side flew open and Freddie Madball, who I didn't know was Freddie Madball at the time, had somebody in their arms and was like, get the fuck out of the way. He just got stabbed. Oh my. <laughs> so that was my first, um, that was my first exposure to like in your face, like you're in the crowd in a New York hardcore show. Like I saw rat bones, like moshing with a chair on his arm, you know, stuff like that. Like, <laughs> um, oh. which of course at the time I was in, you know, I was like, yeah. yes, this is so heavy. Um, <laughs> but that was heavy. And that scene is legitimately like, and that time too, it was like yeah. a real scene, like a real heavy, I've seen yeah. the New York hardcore. I didn't live it like you, Jeff, yeah. unfortunately, like, well, <laughs> I, I Distance, but I have seen the New York hardcore documentary, so yeah. I know it was a pretty wild place. It was, it was, you know, and like, you know, like the long-haired metalheads and the the like skinheaded hardcore kids, like they would legit like fight like bad, like scary. Like I was always just trying to be out of the way enough to mm -hmm. not get into fights, to not get kicked in the face, to not get accidentally stabbed, to not, you know, it was like those were all legitimate concerns that I had every time I went to a show. Yeah. Um, which is weird to think about now. Like if, if stuff starts to get it too rough, even at like local shows, like I tend to like kind of like make a beeline for like standing up on like the side or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I just, I don't want to get hit. I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to break anything. Like it's just, I don't know. I used to like be like, yeah, I'll get close enough that I can see and enjoy how crazy it is. You know, <laughs> I think you um, now you, well, I, you probably knew this really young from unfortunate experiences, but you know, the ramifications and the, the, the reality of the violence and the after effects right. of it. it. It's amazing now, like, cause I've been on tour with some of those guys, like mm -hmm. in, in those bands in New York and even they are very different people. Oh, now. totally. Like, still very real and i'm not yeah. saying they're but but at the same time like you yeah they don't like, go out of their way to start any trouble or doing no, yeah no. not at all um i mean no. and even then a few years later like maybe f four years later like roger murray was the first person to give uh thursday a new york show Whoa. so like yeah so i got to know him as like a very cool nice person like i was never scared of roger if anything i felt sort of you know protected by roger he's like a, a very like um i think I, i'd say he's a very like like family man, you know, like, um, he was playing in lady luck at the time. So we played with lady luck, which was, um, you know, his partner's band at the time. Um, I got the seven inch. You don't have to yeah. go into too much of the history with me, Jeff. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, yeah, so that it's, it was, yeah, it was a very real time, uh, to see some of that, but it, it's funny. Cause at the same time that I was going to those shows, um, I played on stage at the grand, um, with, 
I played saxophone in like a really avant weirdo band, um, opening for X. And, um, so like I was, which X, the LAX or the, or the Dutch X? Um, yeah, like X and Cervenka, like, okay. um, Yeah. yeah. So, um, and like, like I remember, so that was my first time, like I played at, I played one night at the grand and the next night at CB's with with (laughs) them. And at CB's, I was like tripping on acid while I played saxophone on stage. It it was like my first time. So it was like a very, a couple different worlds, you know, I was like sort of like semi in like an art punk phase, but I was also in like kind of getting into like a violent hardcore phase and like still loved goth. And yeah, it was just a very different time. Um, very different time for New York city for sure. Yeah. And it's weird because like, I don't know, but it seems like that doesn't seem as conflicting at, at the time when you think about right. it. Like, cause I guess right. it's a very different time as you're saying. Um, so where did you get into that avant-garde band from? Were those people you knew from school or, or no, this is the most random thing. Um, uh, I would, I had been on vacation with my parents in, um, Fort Lauderdale, oh, yeah. uh, just totally random, you know? And there was a club in Tampa. There was a, an, an old Cuban neighborhood called Ebor City. And um, I went to the Ritz a couple times to see some bands. And, um, like, nobody went to see this one band. And, um, and, um, and later on, they became, like, more popular because they got the, ma- the same manager as Pearl Jam. I mean, they never got really popular, but they became a pop band more. What were they called? Um, they were called Green Apple Quickstep. Okay, yeah. Which is weird. Like, if you hear their record, you're like, there's nothing avant-garde about this. But they were like, they were a trip. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, their bass player was like, she like reminded me of Kim Gordon and like their singer. I don't, he was nuts. Um, and like, you know, they had a, they had me come play saxophone with them. You know, it was very... Um, were you playing saxophone or was it just like an avant-garde get up and um, try? Well, I, you know, I played in like high school band or whatever. And I had like... Coltrane and like I had some like um John Zorn records um so like I got what they wanted you know what yeah, I mean and, yeah and uh and they loved that there was this like 14 year old you know weirdo kid that was gonna come tripping you know they gave me the acid of course so like I was gonna <laughs> just take some acid and jump on stage and play sax with them they were you know nobody was there nobody <laughs> was there the first time we played together so um that is amazing <laughs> Well, how did that X show come about? Was it just like they were on tour with thing? them, and they were like, so that was years later. That was like a year later, and they were like, "We're gonna be around. Like, you should come out, bring your saxophone." Like, all kind of <laughs> laughing at me, I think, but like, but still, we're like game to let me do it or whatever. So that's um, awesome. What a first! Like, I know your cover <laughs> band was your first show, but yeah. still, I would yeah. opening for X is a first show. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty awesome. Even it was and they even acid. got a kick out of me because I was like this kid. You know what I mean? Like I think like Green Apple Quick Stuff probably told them like, yeah, this weird kid's gonna come and like we're gonna give him some drugs or like who knows what they told them. But um, yeah, I think back to what you're saying about it being a different era. Could you uh-huh. imagine a group of adults being like, we're gonna get this 14 year old to come and do acid on stage tonight? Oh my god! Yeah, that would be like a major scandal. The kid would be Snapchatting the, the whole time. Right. And like the cops would show up and be like, yeah, yep. we got to get you to protective services or something. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh, <that is> insane. <laughs> uh, what a, uh, what a, uh, man, there's so many places I want to go just from this last little tangent we've been on. But I guess like, so what were you doing otherwise musically at this point? Like you're, you're playing saxophone with these bands, but are you trying to get something else going? You mentioned you were going to get another band going after you did the cover band. Yeah, I did. I did. I got this um, sort of rotating cast of like my high school friends that were all musicians um, together. And we did a band. It was sort of like all the things that like I was into. It was sort of like um, a little bit of hardcore and like a little bit of like um, new wavy type stuff. It was like really sad, um, which is funny that like, you know, really melodramatic and very pre emo for me. Cause I didn't know what emo was yet. And, um, and like, it also had some weird goth elements to it. Um, it was, it was, you know, it was terrible, but it was like, it was me kind of like, this is, you know, what I'm into or whatever. Um, so like you see, like, our band photos and we're all wearing like chem chem lab shirts and skinny puppy and stuff. And then like, you know, we sounded more like Rollins band or something, you know, but then, but then I was like trying to sing melodies, but I also didn't really have a great grasp on melody. So I was just kind of like crooning without really having like the right notes and stuff. So it was like, it was pretty bad, but I like, 
I kind of knew what I wanted. I just didn't know how to get it. What um, was that band called? Did it have a name? It's or? called Useless. <laughs> oh, sick. Yeah, I mean, we were pretty punk. So, no, I, um, Useless. I guess that still speak to that, like you're saying, New York, like it wasn't out of the question to have like a band like Iceberg that was like a heavy totally. band that influenced by jazz or like a lot of that stuff, I guess, in that post-hardcore New York scene, like some of the older bands at that point like are going more into that direction, I guess? Or? And like I think No Wave... Um, like, I think people really underestimate, like, because No Wave didn't really have any pop culture implications whatsoever, people think it didn't, like, change everything. But at the time, like, you had Thurston Moore and Paige Hamilton playing together in a guitar symphony of, like, avant jazz stuff with, um... Glenn Branca, what right? Name? What's that? Glenn Branca is one, right? Glenn Branca, yeah, exactly. Um, thank you. Um... So it's like... I totally didn't know Paige Hamilton was on that. That's fucking oh, yeah. crazy. Totally. Yeah. Holy um, shit. Yeah. So it was like a very like, you know, and like you had like AMREP bands and like bands that were basically like, you know, dream pop, but they were both like considered noise. You know, I think like genre really, um, it really pushed people together that didn't necessarily belong together, but in a great way. You know? Well, I was going to say, were you seeing any of that Noiseville records, like Unholy Swill and, and that kind of like, I guess AMREP light or amrep affiliate dead guy or unsane or any of that stuff yeah so i loved unsane when i was a kid and i love cop shoot cop and i love yeah. like, jesus lizard and i love like all that kind of stuff with like really in my like you know that was like a mixture of things that you couldn't easily define i really loved that because it let me like all the stuff that i liked without feeling like there was a conflict you know mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um and um you know i think Oh jeez, I had I had a point to that, but I kind of just lost it. Um, but yeah, no, I was really into a bunch of that stuff, and um, and I saw some of it, and then later on, oh, this is what I was going to say, and then later on when I moved to um, New Brunswick, Dead Guy, they were like my people. You know what I mean? Like that that was like how I that's how I found out about Victory Records. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like these were like you know, there's Pops and Crispy, and like you know, it's like it's Dead Guy were like Fixation on a Coworker was like an incredibly important record for me. Um, yeah. So how did that go down locally when I guess – so this is getting so inside baseball, but I've just yeah. always wondered how did it get – when it like with the transition from fixation on a coworker lineup to screaming with the dead guy quintet, was that like something like, you know, as someone – if you're like around that band, like how was that taken locally? Not great because um, I think one of the most high-profile people that was ever with dead guy was um, Eric Cooper mm -hmm. um, who started Kiss a Goodbye after mm – -hmm. um, after he left, you know, another crazy um, underrated band. Yeah, totally. But also sort of like more like fixation where scream with the yeah. dead guy Quintet yeah. became a little too artsy for most people, I think. Um, yeah. Which is sort of ridiculous. If you listen to it now, it's not that different. <laughs> um, well, they're doing everything but the girl cover. It was, it was very progressive <laughs> for the time. Oh geez. I forgot that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think like people really kind of turned on dead guy, which was sad. Like that was a great band. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I like, I, it's one of the, like, we, like, you know, one of those bands that, you know, like from that, like two incredible seven inches and then, yeah, very different LPs, but both are good in their own ways, except for, yeah. I'm not a big fan of the everything but the girl cover, but you know, the rest <laughs> of it's cool. Um, so I guess like at this point, it's kind of around this point that Thursday starts forming, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, not long after, like maybe a year or two later, um, and there wasn't anything like especially different um, that happened in that time that like would have been like, this is why, you know, it was just, yeah. it was just that, um, you know, I moved maybe 45 minutes away and um, got into the new Brunswick local hardcore scene. And, um, and that was hopping at that point. Right? Crazy, crazy. It was on fire. You know, it was like, it was such a big deal. And uh, I fell in with like all my friends now were into hardcore like everybody that i met in college that i was friends with they were all hardcore kids um so it was like a really intense time of like focusing in on like the hardcore stuff like it was like you know all the goth and whatever else was like yeah that's cool whatever like whatever weird stuff you like on your own time but this is what we're all into mm -hmm. so um and this is our scene you know we're all like at the bouncing souls house um so like you know it was like and that's when like basement shows became a real way of life and what a crazy diverse scene that was, like, you know, for yeah. punk. Yeah. 
Um, so what, what were the like? It was like Weston, like Lifetime, uh, Bouncing Souls, like I guess like yeah, Dead Guys, all kind of playing around there at that point. So are yeah. are you just kind of like inspired to do this band? Uh, um, no, I wasn't. Um, <laughs> it, it's funny because um, you know, I was inspired to join um the concert commission in New Brunswick, like in uh, Rutgers, um. And so that was it. Like I joined up and started doing concerts for, um, for his, uh, I started doing concerts for, um, for, for Rutgers and the big turning point for me in that, where I stopped doing that and started thinking about other ways to do DIY shows was, um, they told me that there was one band that was, that was banned for life from Rutgers and that I would never be able to book a show for them because they were the most hated band in New Jersey. And it was Ink and Dagger. I said, <laughs> never can you bring Ink and Dagger back to Rutgers. They broke pens and threw ink all over everybody wearing nice sweaters to the hardcore show. Because if you remember at the time, like emo kids really started wearing like sweaters to shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so like Mark, ruined Mark everybody's clothes. <laughs> 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 and I was so like fuck that. This is the whole reason I want to do shows is to have a band like King and Dagger play. Uh, what was your first show that you did at Rutgers? What were some of the shows you did at Rutgers? Well, I mean, stuff that I worked before I was allowed to do shows there was like, um, uh, like they might be giants and it was all stuff I wasn't really interested in, but I wanted to, um, um, you know, I wanted, I wanted to, um, to eventually get to the place where I was calling the shots and you know uh, just when they told me like there's no way you're going to be allowed to do x y and z because they're banned yeah. I just realized like why am I doing this why am I like paying my dues at an organization that when I get there is still not going to let me do what I want to do yeah um, and I guess so. Ink and Dagger for what you're what you've described that you're into is like <laughs> probably your you know now you've obviously had a relationship with this band beyond it, so they're yeah. like your ideal band oh my god it was Seeing them was like practically a religious experience because they were so dangerous. They were so stylized. They were so dark. You know, they were so musically adventurous. They were so groundbreaking. Like they brought together things like, you know, they brought Aphex Twin into, you know, with, and I was like, I'm fucking in, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and the fact that they were like pissing everybody off and were like legitimately a thing that people talked about (laughs) in social conversation, not about music, like about like what kind of assholes they are. Are. <laughs> yep. I was like, this is so cool, you know? Um, so yeah. So then I, uh, you know, I mentioned it to, you know, my first roommate, this kid clay who, you know, toured with Ensign and like worked with a bunch of different bands. Um, he actually has a crazy story, um, with his family and the CIA and stuff, but I can't really get into that. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, um, he, you know, he was like super hardcore dude and he was way more into youth crew than I was. And he was straight edge. Um, but we both agreed on ink and dagger and that was like huge. Um, so when I told him like, this is what they said, he's like, we should get a house. We should go off campus. Cause we were living in the dorms. He's like, we should go off campus, get a house and do whatever the fuck we want. And I was like, really? So we grabbed my friend Lewis, um, who was like sort of more like a 108, like Krishna style, like dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all got a house and started doing shows um, where each three, like we would all help each other do the shows, but each of us booked our own shows at the house. So there were like lots of local youth crew, New Jersey style shows that Clay did. And then I did stuff like you and I and Seisha. And, you know, I did like a uni- universal order of Armageddon type stuff with, um, you know, go, go, go Earhart and the locust and, uh, at the drive-in and, you know, I had boy sits fire, hot water music and you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, um, did you have baby Gopal play? Cause you're a Krishna roommate. Oh my God. Like, I think we it? did. Yeah, we did have, baby <laughs> Gopal awesome. play. yeah. Um, <laughs> but he had cool stuff yeah. too. Like he had mile yeah. marker play. He had like stuff that I didn't expect him to be into. Um, and he got me into like, uh, Hoover and, um, who else did we have? Um, uh, what was the sleepy time trio band after sleepy time? Um, I don't know. I'm blanking now. Yeah. I can uh, think of the sleepy like, time trio seven inch though. Yeah. It was like transmit failure was the name of the record. I'm trying to remember who's, 
whose record that was. Anyway, um, so we had like all these really exciting shows and we would put, you know, regularly, we would put 120 people in the basement, you know, regularly. And then our, our big shows would have 225, oh, 250 shit. people in it. And, uh, it was crazy. You know, we would have to open the storm windows and people would lie down on the ground, um, and stick their head in the window to watch the band. You know, it was, it was great. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. So we saw a show that was Cave and Dillinger Escape Plan. Um, yeah, so we saw Cave and Dillinger Escape Plan and Ink and Dagger. I think Endeavor opened up, who had just done a split with Envy, who Thursday later did a split with. Yeah. But we saw these shows. It was me and Tom and Tucker, and we were like, we should just start a band to play the basement. Like, this is so sick. Like, we should do a band like this. And, you know, Thursday was nothing like any of those bands, but that's what we were trying to do when we started. Um, so... Yeah, it was crazy. Like that was just a super inspiring thing to see Ink and Dagger that night. We started the band, and our first show uh, was New Year's Eve '98, and um, yeah, and it was it was us saves the day, inside movie life, poison the well. It was like me, yeah, like eight bands, and Thursday played three songs because that's what we had written. Um, was it a news? Was it a New Year's fest, or was it? Like- yeah, it was. It was New Year's Eve. It was like a New Year's Eve basement show. Yeah. Seven bands, and it was super fun. And there were like you know, because it was Saves the Day, and they put out Can't Slow Down. There was you know a couple hundred people there. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like uh, people really supported Thursday because I had become such a um, a giver to the scene. You know what I mean? I, I was constantly doing shows i let every band stay at our house like even if you were playing the melody bar or like a record show you could still stay at 331 somerset like that was like you know like i went to see nap back and the at the drive-in guy stayed at our house and that's how we got to be close and like um you know melody bar had a fire so we ended up putting the hot water music leatherface show with kid dynamite you know at our house and um yeah it just it, that's how it was like people wanted to support Thursday just because like I had done so much to support the scene. I even like worked a job so that I could have, um, I could have enough money that if nobody came to the show, I could at least give the band like, you know, a hundred bucks or 70, 80 bucks to get gas and, um, and make it to New York or make it to Philly, you know, depending on which direction they were heading. It was like really important to me to be like, Oh, it didn't turn out well. Well, that's my fault. I didn't get enough people here. So, um, you must have yes, gone through I a think. lot of money at that point because hardcore shows would <laughs> underdraw a number of times. I yeah, I mean, we were lucky that like people, there were enough bands that the bands wanted to see these other bands, yeah, and yeah. we would routinely get twenty to thirty people like at our at our nobody came show. Mm-hmm. So thirty people at a nobody's here show, you know, you know how it is. Like that's actually not crazy for like. And nobody came show. No, um, you can do a lot less than thirty people. <laughs> I played to two before Jeff, so I know yeah. all about it. Oh, uh, dude, the first show we played in Atlanta, we played in a, a living room in Atlanta, or no, we played in a kitchen in Atlanta, and it had a tiled black and white floor. And I remember playing for the guy who set up the show, and one person walked in, and opened the door to the living room, <laughs> and there were like twenty people playing like a card game. <laughs> it's so sad. They were just right there, and they wouldn't come watch us play. Uh, killed me. Were they playing Magic the Gathering or something, or was it like just like a regular poker game type thing? Yeah, I don't know. I actually like. I actually like couldn't look at them. I was so like embarrassed and mad. I was like, you know, we were on tour, and you didn't even bother to walk over five feet for a twenty-minute set. You know, when we started touring, we played for twenty minutes because I was like, nobody likes us. Nobody wants to see it. Yes. Mm-hmm. We have to win them over in the least amount of time possible and then let them get on with their day. You know what I mean? Like, Which is a great philosophy, I think, for bands to have when you start because it's true. Yeah. Like, you go on that show, it's not going to get better after the first 20 minutes. Totally. Um, I really agree. I wish I could still use that philosophy today. But. <laughs> I know, right? Like, yeah, Thursday, like, I don't know. We have so many damn songs that it's like. You know, any set that we do, you know, we played an hour and 10 minutes at the like Chicago side show. Like every festival that we book now, we book a little tiny show that people, you know, that it's not going to take away from anybody going to the festival to see us like a couple hundred people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do that just so that our super fans can get like an hour and 20 minutes worth of us. Yeah. And still they're like, how come you didn't play this? It's like, because we have eight records. 
That's well, why that's, we didn't play it, you know? <laughs> and also, you must have, like, like you know, because we have uh, half as many records as you guys do, but still, like, there's fans of eras of the band. And, like, if you focus on one record more than another, someone's like, ah, oh, you didn't play anything off this other record. It's like, right. it's hard. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I know, that was on purpose. We wrote a set list. I get it. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So I guess, like, your first – so was that – your first demo, did you guys do a tape release of it, or was it only uh-huh. available online? Oh, it had tape, too. Oh, we had tape, and we did CDR. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh, th- and so how did that, like, that recording, that's, like, that was for the first tour that you did in 99? Um, we actually, yeah, so we did, like, a tape version of it first. Okay. It was two less songs. Um, it had This Side of Brightness was the first song on it. Um, the 99 tour one had, like, Porcelain on yeah. it as well. Um so we did a tape version first that was just for playing regional shows. You know, did it have a sleeve? Weekends. Sorry, I didn't it did. Oh wow! Yeah, it had a uh, <laughs> it had a folded up like handwritten. We hand wrote each sleeve. Um, oh no, no, I hand wrote. We hand wrote the sleeve, and then we had hacked Kinko's cards so we could go and run, um, you know, um, like cardstock yep. sleeves, and then we the would 90s. score them. <laughs> yeah, we would score them with the exacto knives and fold them in, and you know. Um, but yeah, that was um, that was the way to do it back then, yeah. and uh, and that was our sleeve, and uh, and then we kind of did a similar thing for the CDR. We just added two songs to it, um, and before then, actually, you know, when we first did like the first show we did after we had a demo tape, Alex from Eyeball approached us about putting out a seven inch just of that demo, and the way I looked at it was like. I already paid for this fucking recording. Like, pay for a full-length record if yeah. you want to put anything out. That's the way I told him. I was like, we're, we're doing a full-length or we're doing nothing. And he was like, no, nah, I just want to put out a 7-inch. I was like, you don't want to pay for it. I get it. But pay for a record. And <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that, that how the eyeball relationship started, right? From, you, I guess you would have known him from shows, right? Yeah, he came out. Um, so the Midtown guys always played our ba- basement. And I knew them. Um, I knew a few of them really, really well. I introduced a couple of them to their girlfriends at the time. Um, they were on Eyeball, and they were like, you guys are, you know, they were like huge fans. And it was weird because we didn't, we weren't Midtown fans. So mm-hmm. I always felt like, oh, why is this pop punk band like us? Like, <laughs> we're like dark, we're like San Diego hardcore. You know, like I had this, <laughs> in my mind, we were this like big artsy, sounded like like angel hair and like heroin, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so like... Um, well, I guess before we move on, like, so how'd you get into that stuff? Like, how did you get into the San Diego stuff? Was it just through like hardcore, like heart attack type thing? Or was it a band you saw? Yeah, it was all the bands playing our basement. We had so many touring bands and that was like the major, you know, I mean, we, our local, our closest friends were you and I and Seisha and they were really influenced by that kind of stuff. And they would bring those bands out with them. And I was going to a, a lot of festivals and like that kind of whole Spock you know, white belt yep. um, thing. I was super into it. It was so cool. I still love it. I still like that appealed to my goth sensibilities. 100%. Yeah. You know? um, it's so, funny that death from above 1979 kind of comes out of that scene too. Like, Jesse, oh, I didn't know that. That's actually makes a ton of sense now that you say that. Yeah. Like, like Jess, Jesse was in standing eight, which was totally that vibe type band. Oh, I love that. I mean, thank you for telling me that because I always <laughs> liked them, but I didn't know why I liked them. And that's to- it makes way more sense now to me. Well, um, no, here's something you've got to check out then. If you like them, you've got to check out the, the cover they did of Better Off Dead by La Peste. That get, is, the, get out of here. It's wow. awesome. It is so good. Uh, cool. Uh, sorry, but I cut you off talking about uh, Eyeball, the Spock record scene, I guess. And <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so, yes, that's how we uh, met, you know, Alex and... Um, you know, he had done, you know, the H2O demo. He mm-hmm. had done like a bunch of, you know, Casualties was kind of like one of his big bands. He put out breakdowns. There was like a lot of New York hardcore in there, but he also put out um, the Kill Van Call. Okay. And the Kill Van Call was kind of like the band after Kiss a Goodbye. So Cooper went from, you know, uh, Dead Guy to Kiss a Goodbye to Kill Van Call, which was like his artsiest thing. And I was super into that. And he was like, see, you fit. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. We fit, you know? Um, and, and then, and then uh, you know, it was also like nobody else wanted us to, so that helped as well. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, that's yeah. And hard, like you said, heart attack, you know, like the, they all played our basement, like all the people who ran everything, you know, Steve Aoki played the basement, like, you know, uh, you know, it's just, 
yeah, that, that crew was all about our basement. You know, we yeah. had race, race trader played the basement. We had some reversal. A man broke up in our basement. You know what I mean? So we had like a lot of big moments happen there. <laughs> is, you're like going through like the, the checklist of major nineties milestones that yeah. happened underneath where you slept. Um, yeah. it's, it's also weird when you think about like how much, like how small that scene was. Like if a band sold, you know, 2000 records, it was incredible. Oh my God. Yeah. But the impact, like, you know, Steve Aoki, like members of like Gaslight Anthem, like yourself, like just so much, oh, like yeah. Midtown, uh, like so much, My Chemical Romance, like so much stuff yep. comes out of these basements. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, we played with Benny's old band, Low End Theory, more than just about anybody else. Yeah. Um, so Benny, Benny from Gaslight. And, you know, that was years before he found Gaslight and, and had such a, a hit on his hands. He was doing and, shows too at that point, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And like Paul Hanley from French Kiss Records, like mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. was doing shows just down the block. But it's funny because I was doing all the stuff that he's into and he was doing all the bands like – that I would be like, people would think, Oh, Jeff did these shows like Rainer Marie and Jejun and this band, like <laughs> yeah. that was all Paul Hanley. But I was doing like all the, like really like, you know, artsy, you know, spazzy, noisy stuff. And, uh, yes, yeah, so it's funny. It's funny. Like a lot of people don't think like that I would have like some kind of pedigree like that or something, but I just thought of it as like, this is what I'm into, you know? Well, I think um, you have, you know, like I, like I obviously knew you had diverse tastes in music, but just like uh-huh. the age and the depth you go, it's like, <laughs> I bow down, Jeff, like a hundred percent. I bow down. Like it's, it's not it's like, um, but man, like we have, as I told you before, we aren't even at victory. Right. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to what people consider to be the beginning of our career. So, no, yeah. we're, that's the thing about this podcast. And I won't keep you too much longer because we got to do a part two real quick. Oh, uh, dude, I was just going to say, can we please do a part two? Because oh, like, this is just where things get weird. You know? This is exactly. <laughs> that's the thing. Like I told you, this, this is a nerdy-ass podcast where we get caught up in the minutia and don't go yeah, inside know. the baseball. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the thing about this podcast. But I guess like before we do, is it at this point, like after you have the record at Eyeball, Mm-hmm. How quickly is it that you start seeing, or even at this point, that you start seeing a following begin to form? So in New Jersey, we started to draw mm-hmm. a couple hundred kids, sort of no matter what. If we played a bigger show, which would be like Wayne Firehouse, we would start to draw yeah. like 400 kids. Um, yeah. Which at the time, that was like sort of unheard of for a local band. And we were playing with big enough bands, you know, opening for, you know, Get Up Kids or Jimmy World or whoever. They're like, it was hard to tell who was bringing who, but kids were singing along. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like, you know, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. There were pockets of people that were singing along and getting it. And uh, that's when um, Alex said, you know, I think you could have a bigger record next time. Are you interested? My friend Jen worked at Victory Records, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, Victory Records at the time, like I was into Snapcase. I was into Dead Guy. I was into, you know, they were refused. I was into them. There were good bands there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we almost broke up and Alex was like, don't do that. Like, don't break up. Like, just because we were all in school and it was all busy. And, you know, like I had done 300 basement shows um, in, I guess, three years. So it's like a lot of shows, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it just sort of got to the place where I was, like, ready to call quits. But Alex was like, don't do that. Uh, you know, he really kept the band together. Um, and we had written uh, Paris and Flames, and we had written, like, one or two other songs that would end up on full collapse. He was like, this record could be great. You owe it to yourself to take off a year. Just take off a year from school. Like, go on tour for real. Put out a record, like, on a big label. Like, I'll even let you out of your contract. You know, like, it was, like, that kind of thing where he was just like, please do it. And I met Jen, who worked at Victory, and she was amazing. She signed us. I had never met Tony. And she left the company before our record came out. So it was, like, (laughs) total bait and switch on people. And I would go out and be like, oh, hey, you know, all at war. Hey, this person. Hey, we signed a Victory. And they'd be like, you're fucked. You're fucked. And that's not what I expected. Like yeah. I thought we were going to get some kind of a welcome or, and instead it was like, well, kiss your career goodbye is what we kept hearing. Um, my so, yeah, God. It, was, it was nuts. <laughs> that's the best cliffhanger we could have to end this podcast <laughs> for today, Jeff. Um, yes, dude, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, uh, I can't wait to do part two. I'm really excited. Yeah, no, thank you so much for like going deep in this direction. Cause people know that like, the big touchstones of Thursday's career yeah. and they stick to that. 
but like it's really nice to talk about like how crazy into music I was and you know it's it's really fun so well I think that's the thing about Thursday is like you know it's it's now like it was really it hit me when I watched uh Skyler Danny Brown's DJ flip the fuck out <laughs> when he saw you and just be like yeah. and and just and it's like oh yeah like Thursday is such a monumentally important band for this next crop of bands that are coming up like they're the band but I just think you know, it's such a sonically different band, as you said, from like a lot of the stuff that was coming up around you. So to find out yeah. where it all came from is is amazing. So, dude, thank you so much. Thank you, Damien. And uh, yeah, cool. Thank you, Jeff, for coming on the show. And as you can hear right there, we got plans for a part two in the immediate. But before we get to that, we got something else to get to. Next week on the show, it's not one, but two major things that we got to talk about. Next week on the show, there'll be a major announcement that you're going to want to tune in to hear about. But perhaps more important than that, definitely more important than that, and certainly for a lot of you, more exciting than that. Next week on the show, Elisa White Gulls of the band Arch Enemy and also... Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein of the band The Misfits will be joining me for a very special Halloween edition of Turned Out a Punk. They are two people from completely different backgrounds and journeys into music, but you know, both come through a love of punk rock and ultimately are brought together by a love of each other. Is it Appropriate to call a metal couple adorable or like a, a like a punk couple adorable? Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, an adorable couple? I don't know. You will judge for yourself next week. I thought they were adorable. This is a great episode, a lot of fun. There's some awesome stuff talked about. And uh, yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. So join me next week for a very special Halloween edition of the show. If you want to get in touch with me once again, you can head over to DamienAbraham.com. You can send me an email. Find me on various forms of social media, at Damien. Do me a favor, though. Come see me. Check out FuckedUp.cc for the list of shows that Fucked Up's going to be playing. And also, check Vice next week for the Tournament of Death Bloodlust documentary. Bloodlust is going to be something that will blow your minds. I... I promise you. Anyway, everyone, thank you very much for listening. And remember, anyone can do this shit. So go out there and make your own culture. But remember, you're probably going to be up way past your bedtime doing it most times.